Book Four, Chapter Four, Part One of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Four. What Life Is. Chapter Four. End of Sophia. Part One. One. The kitchen steps were as steep, dark, and difficult as ever. Up those steps, Sophia Scales, nine years older than when she had failed to persuade Constance to leave the square, was carrying a large basket, weighted with all the heaviness of Fossette. Sophia, despite her age, climbed the steps violently and burst with equal violence into the parlour where she deposited the basket on the floor near the empty fireplace. She was triumphant and breathless. She looked at Constance, who had been standing near the door in the attitude of a shocked listener. There, said Sophia, did you hear how she talked? Yes, said Constance. What shall you do? Well, said Sophia, I had a very good mind to order her out of the house at once, but then I thought I would take no notice. Her time will be up in three weeks. It's best to be indifferent if once they see they can upset you. However, I wasn't going to leave Fossette down there to her tender mercies a moment longer. She's simply not looked after her at all. Sophia went on her knees to the basket, and pulling aside the dog's hair, round about the head examined the skin. Fossette was a sick dog, and behaved like one. Fossette, too, was nine years older, and her senility was offensive. She was, to no sense, a pleasant object. "'See here,' said Sophia. Constance also knelt to the basket. "'And here,' said Sophia, "'and here.' The dog sighed, the insincere and pity-seeking sigh of a spoilt animal. Fossette foolishly hoped by such appeals to be spared the annoying treatment prescribed for her by the veterinary surgeon. While the sisters were coddling her, and protecting her from her own paws, and trying to persuade her that all was for the best. Another aged dog wandered vaguely into the room. Spot. Spot had very few teeth, and his legs were stiff. He had only one vice, jealousy. Fearing that Fossette might be receiving the entire attention of his mistresses, he had come to inquire into the situation. When he found the justification of his gloomiest apprehensions, he nosed obstinately up to Constance, and would not be put off. In vain Constance told him at length that he was interfering with the treatment. In vain Sophia ordered him sharply to go away. He would not listen to reason, being furious with jealousy. He got his foot into the basket. "'Will you?' exclaimed Sophia angrily, and gave him a clout on his old head. He barked snappishly, and retired to the kitchen again, disillusioned, tired of the world, and nursing his terrific grievance. "'I do declare,' said Sophia, "'that dog gets worse and worse.' Constance said nothing. When everything was done that could be done for the aged virgin in the basket, the sisters rose from their knees stiffly, and they began to whisper to each other about the prospects of obtaining a fresh servant. They also debated whether they could tolerate the criminal eccentricities of the present occupant of the cave for a yet another three weeks. Evidently they were in the midst of a crisis. 
To judge from Constance's face, every imaginable woe had been piled on them by destiny, without the slightest regard for their powers of resistance. Her eyes had the permanent look of worry, and there was in them also something of the self-defensive. Sophia had a bellicose air, as though the creature in the cave had squarely challenged her, and she was decided to take up the challenge. Sophia's tone seemed to imply an accusation of Constance. The general tension was acute. Then suddenly their whispers expired, and the door opened, and the servant came in to lay the supper. Her nose was high, her gaze cruel, radiant, and conquering. She was a pretty and an impudent girl of about twenty-three. She knew she was torturing her old and infirm mistresses. She did not care. She did it purposely. Her motto was, "'War on employers. Get all you can out of them, for they will get all they can out of you.' On principle, the sole principle she possessed, she would not stay in a place more than six months. She liked change, and employers did not like change. She was shameless with men. She ignored all orders as to what she was to eat and what she was not to eat. She lived up to the full resources of her employers. She could be to the last degree slatternly, or she could be as neat as a pin, with an apron that symbolised purity and propriety, as to-night. She could be idle during a whole day, accumulating dirty dishes from morn till eve. On the other hand, she could, when she chose, work with astonishing celerity, and even thoroughness. In short, she was born to infuriate a mistress like Sophia, and to wear out a mistress like Constance. Her strongest advantage in the struggle was that she enjoyed altercation, she revelled in a brawl, she found peace tedious. She was perfectly calculated to convince the sisters that times had worsened, and that the world would never again be the beautiful, agreeable place it once had been. Her gestures as she laid the table were very graceful, in the pert style. She dropped forks into their appointed positions with disdain. She made slightly too much noise. When she turned, she manoeuvred her swelling hips, as though for the benefit of a soldier in a handsome uniform. Nothing but the servant had been changed in that house. The harmonium on which Mr. Povey used occasionally to play was still behind the door, and on the harmonium was the tea-caddy, of which Mrs. Baines used to carry the key on her bunch. In the corner to the right of the fireplace still hung the cupboard, where Mrs. Baines stored her pharmacopoeia. The rest of the furniture was arranged as it had been arranged, when the death of Mrs. Baines endowed Mr. and Mrs. Povey with all the treasures of the house at Axe. And it was as good as ever, better than ever. Dr. Stirling often expressed the desire for a corner cupboard like Mrs. Baines's corner cupboard. One item had been added, the peel compote, which Matthew Peel Swinnerton had noticed in the dining-room of the Pension Frenchman. This majestic piece, which had been reserved by Sophia in the sale of the Pension, stood alone on a Canterbury in the drawing-room. She had stored it, with a few other trifles, in Paris, and when she sent for it and the packing-case arrived, both she and Constance became aware that they were united for the rest of their lives. Of worldly goods, except money, securities, and clothes, that compote was practically all that Sophia owned. Happily, it was a first-class item, doing no shame to the antique magnificence of the drawing-room. In yielding to Constance's terrible inertia, Sophia had meant nevertheless to work her own will on the interior of the house. She had meant to bully Constance into modernising the dwelling. She did bully Constance, but the house defied her. Nothing could be done to that house. 
If only it had had a hall or a lobby, a complete transformation would have been possible. But there was no access to the upper floor except through the parlour. The parlour could not, therefore, be turned into a kitchen and the basement suppressed, and the ladies of the house could not live entirely on the upper floor. The disposition of the rooms had to remain exactly as it had always been. There was the same draught under the door, the same darkness on the kitchen stairs, the same difficulties with tradesmen in the distant backyard, the same twist in the bedroom stairs, the same eternal ascending and descending of pails, an efficient cooking-stove instead of the large and capacious range, alone represented the twentieth century in the fixtures of the house. Buried at the root of the relations between the sisters was Sophia's grudge against Constance for refusing to leave the square. Sophia was loyal. She would not consciously give with one hand while taking away with the other, and in accepting Constance's decision she honestly meant to close her eyes to its stupidity, but she could not entirely succeed. She could not avoid thinking that the angelic Constance had been strangely and monstrously selfish in refusing to quit the square. She marvelled that a woman of Constance's sweet and calm disposition should be capable of so vast and ruthless an egotism. Constance must have known that Sophia would not leave her, and that the habitation of the square was a continual irk to Sophia. Constance had never been able to advance a single argument for remaining in the square, and yet she would not budge. It was so inconsistent with the rest of Constance's behaviour. See Sophia sitting primly there by the table, a woman approaching sixty, with immense experience written on the fine hardness of her worn and distinguished face. Though her hair is not yet all grey, nor her figure bowed, you would imagine that she would, in her passage through the world, have learnt better than to expect a character to be consistent. But no, she was ever disappointed and hurt by Constance's inconsistency. And see Constance, stout and bowed, looking more than her age, with hair nearly white, and slightly trembling hands. See that face, whose mark is meekness and the spirit of conciliation, the desire for peace. You would not think that that placid soul could, while submitting to it, inly rage against the imposed weight of Sophia's individuality. "'Because I wouldn't turn out of my house to please her,' Constance would say to herself. "'She fancies she's entitled to do just as she likes.' Not often did she secretly rebel thus but it occurred sometimes. They never quarrelled. They would have regarded separation as a disaster. Considering the difference of their lives, they agreed marvellously in their judgment of things. But that buried question of domicile prevented a complete unity between them, and its subtle effect was to influence both of them to make the worst, instead of the best, of the trifling mishaps that disturbed their tranquillity. When annoyed, Sophia would meditate upon the mere fact that they lived in the square for no reason whatever, until it grew incredibly shocking to her. After all, it was scarcely conceivable that they should be living in the very middle of a dirty, ugly, industrial town, simply because Constance mulishly declined to move. Another thing that curiously exasperated both of them upon occasion was that, owing to a recurrence of her old complaint of dizziness after meals, Sophia had been strictly forbidden to drink tea, which she loved. Sophia chafed under the deprivation, and Constance's pleasure was impaired because she had to drink it alone. While the brazen and pretty servant, mysteriously smiling to herself, dropped food and utensils on to the table, 
Constance and Sophia attempted to converse with negligent ease upon indifferent topics, as though nothing had occurred that day to mar the beauty of ideal relations between employers and employed. The pretence was ludicrous. The young wench saw through it instantly, and her mysterious smile developed almost into a laugh. "'Please shut the door after you, Maud,' said Sophia, as the girl picked up her empty tray. "'Yes, ma'am,' replied Maud politely. She went out, and left the door open. It was a defiance, offered from sheer youthful wanton mischief. The sisters looked at each other, their faces gravely troubled, aghast, as though they had glimpsed the end of civilised society, as though they felt that they had lived too long into an age of decadence and open shame. Constance's face showed despair. She might have been about to be pitched into the gutter without a friend and without a shilling. But Sophia's had the reckless courage that disaster breeds. Sophia jumped up and stepped to the door. Maud, she called out. No answer. Maud, do you hear me? The suspense was fearful. Still no answer. Sophia glanced at Constance. Either she shuts this door, or she leaves this house at once, even if I have to fetch a policeman. And Sophia disappeared down the kitchen steps. Constance trembled with painful excitement. The horror of existence closed in upon her. She could imagine nothing more appalling than the past to which they had been brought by the modern change in the lower classes. In the kitchen, Sophia, conscious that the moment held the future of at least the next three weeks, collected her forces. "'Maud,' she said, "'did you not hear me call you?' Maud looked up from a book, doubtless a wicked book. "'No, ma'am.' "'You liar!' thought Sophia, and she said, "'I asked you to shut the parlour door, and I shall be obliged if you will do so.' Now Maud would have given a week's wages for the moral force to disobey Sophia. There was nothing to compel her to obey. She could have trampled on the fragile and weak Sophia. But something in Sophia's gaze compelled her to obey. She flounced, she bridled, she mumbled. She unnecessarily disturbed the venerable spot. But she obeyed. Sophia had risked all, and she had won something. "'And you should light the gas in the kitchen,' said Sophia magnificently, as Maud followed her up the steps. "'Your young eyes may be very good now, but you are not going the way to preserve them. My sister and I have often told you that we do not grudge you gas.' With stateliness she rejoined Constance, and sat down to the cold supper. And as Maud clicked the door to— the sisters breathed relief. They envisaged new tribulations, but for a brief instant there was surcease. Yet they could not eat. Neither of them, when it came to the point, could swallow. The day had been too exciting, too distressing. They were at the end of their resources, and they did not hide from each other that they were at the end of their resources. The illness of Fossette, without anything else, had been more than enough to ruin their tranquillity. But the illness of Fossette was as nothing to the ingenious naughtiness of the servant. Maud had a sense of temporary defeat, and was planning fresh operations. But really it was Maud who had conquered. Poor old things, they were in such a state that they could not eat. "'I am not going to let her think she can spoil my appetite,' said Sophia, dauntless. Truly that woman's spirit was unquenchable. She cut a couple of slices off the cold fowl. She cut a tomato into slices. She disturbed the butter. 
she crumbled bread on the cloth, and rubbed bits of fowl over the plates, and dirtied knives and forks. Then she put the slices of fowl and bread and tomato into a piece of tissue paper, and silently went upstairs with the parcel, and came down a moment afterwards empty-handed. After an interval she rang the bell, and lighted the gas. "'We've finished, Maud. You can clear away.' Constance thirsted for a cup of tea. She felt that a cup of tea was the one thing that would certainly keep her alive. She longed for it passionately, but she would not demand it from Maud. Nor would she mention it to Sophia, lest Sophia, flushed by the victory of the door, should incur new risks. She simply did without. On empty stomachs they tried pathetically to help each other in games of patience. And when the blithe Maud passed through the parlour on the way to bed, she saw two dignified and apparently calm ladies, apparently absorbed in a delightful game of cards, apparently without a worry in the world. They said, "'Good-night, Maud,' cheerfully, politely, and coldly. It was a heroic scene. Immediately afterwards, Sophia carried Fossett up to her own bedroom. 2. The next afternoon the sisters, in the drawing-room, saw Dr. Stirling's motor-car speeding down the square. The doctor's partner, young Harrop, had died a few years before at the age of over seventy, and the practice was much larger than it had ever been, even in the time of old Harrop. Instead of two or three horses, Stirling kept a car, which was a constant spectacle in the streets of the district. "'I do hope he'll call in,' said Mrs. Povey, and sighed. Sophia smiled to herself with a little scorn. She knew that Constance's desire for Dr. Stirling was due simply to the need which she felt of telling someone about the great calamity that had happened to them that morning. Constance was utterly absorbed by it in the most provincial way. Sophia had said to herself at the beginning of her sojourn in Bursley and long afterwards that she should never get accustomed to the exasperating provinciality of the town exemplified by the childish preoccupation of the inhabitants with their own tuppenny affairs. No characteristic of life in Bursley annoyed her more than this. None had oftener caused her to yearn in brief madness for the desert-like freedom of great cities. But she had got accustomed to it. Indeed, she had almost ceased to notice it. Only occasionally, when her nerves were more upset than usual, did it strike her. She went into Constance's bedroom, to see whether the doctor's car halted in King Street. It did. "'He's here,' she called out to Constance. "'I wish you'd go down, Sophia,' said Constance. "'I can't trust that minx.' So Sophia went downstairs, to superintend the opening of the door by the minx. The doctor was radiant, according to custom. "'I thought I'd just see how that dizziness was going on,' said he, as he came up the steps. "'I'm glad you've come.' said Sophia, confidentially. Since the first days of their acquaintanceship they had always been confidential. You'll do my sister good to-day. Just as Maud was closing the door, a telegraph-boy arrived, with a telegram addressed to Mrs. Scales. Sophia read it, and then crumpled it in her hand. "'What's wrong with Mrs. Povey to-day?' the doctor asked, when the servant had withdrawn. "'She, she only wants a bit of your society,' said Sophia. "'Will you go up? You know the way to the drawing-room?' "'I'll follow.' As soon as he had gone, she sat down on the sofa, staring out of the window. And then, with a grunt, "'Well, that's no use, anyway,' she went upstairs after the doctor. Already Constance had begun upon her recital. 
"'Yes,' Constance was saying, "'and when I went down this morning to keep an eye on the breakfast, I thought Spot was very quiet.' She paused. "'He was dead in the drawer. She pretended she didn't know, but I'm sure she did. Nothing will convince me that she didn't poison that dog with the mice-poison we had last year. She was vexed because Sophia took her up sharply about Fossette last night, and she revenged herself on the other dog. It would be just like her—' "'Don't tell me. I know I should have packed her off at once. "'But Sophia thought better not. "'We couldn't prove anything, as Sophia says. "'Now, what do you think of it, doctor?' "'Constance's eyes suddenly filled with tears. "'Ah, you'd had spot a long time, hadn't ye?' "'He said sympathetically. "'She nodded. "'When I was married,' said she, "'the first thing my husband did was to buy a fox-terrier, "'and ever since we've always had a fox-terrier in the house.' This was not true, but Constance was firmly convinced of its truth. "'That's very trying,' said the doctor. "'I knew when my Airedale died I said to my wife I'd never have another dog, unless she could find me one that would live forever. You remember my Airedale?' "'Oh, quite well.' "'Well, my wife said I should be bound to have another one sooner or later, and the sooner the better. She went straight off to Oldcastle and brought me a spaniel pup.' "'and there was such a to-do training it "'that we hadn't much time to think about Piper.' "'Constance regarded this procedure as somewhat callous, "'and she said so tartly. "'Then she recommenced the tale of Spot's death from the beginning, "'and took it as far as his burial, "'that afternoon by Mr. Critchlow's manager, in the yard. "'It had been necessary to remove and replace paving-stones.' "'Of course,' said Dr. Stirling, Ten years is a long time. He was an old dog. Well, you've still got the celebrated Fossette.' He turned to Sophia. "'Oh, yes,' said Constance, perfunctorily. "'Fossette's ill. The fact is that if Fossette hadn't been ill, Spot would probably have been alive and well now.' Her tone exhibited a grievance. She could not forget that Sophia had harshly dismissed Spot to the kitchen, thus practically sending him to his death. It seemed very hard to her that Fossette, whose life had once been despaired of, should continue to exist, while Spot, always healthy and unspoilt, should die, untended, and by treachery. For the rest, she had never liked Fossette. On Spot's behalf, she had always been jealous of Fossette. "'Probably alive and well now,' she repeated, with a peculiar accent. Observing that Sophia maintained a strange silence— Dr. Stirling suspected a slight tension in the relations of the sisters, and he changed the subject. One of his great qualities was that he refrained from changing a subject introduced by a patient, unless there was a professional reason for changing it. "'I've just met Richard Povey in the town,' said he. "'He told me to tell you he'd be round in about an hour or so to take you for a spin. He was in a new car, which he did his best to sell to me, but he didn't succeed.' Oh, "'It's very kind of Dick,' said Constance. "'But this afternoon, really, we're not—' "'I'll thank ye to take it as a prescription, then,' replied the doctor. "'I told Dick that I'd see ye went. "'Splendid June weather. "'No dust after all that rain. "'It'll do ye all the good in the world. "'I must exercise my authority. "'The truth is, I've been gradually losing all control of ye. "'Ye do just as ye like.' "'Oh, doctor, how you do run on!' murmured Constance, not quite well pleased to-day by his tone. 
After the scene between Sophia and herself at Buxton, Constance had always, to a certain extent, in the doctor's own phrase, got her knife into him. Sophia had then, in a manner, betrayed him. Constance and the doctor discussed that matter with frankness, the doctor humorously accusing her of being hard on him. Nevertheless, the little cloud between them was real, and the result was often a faint captiousness on Constance's part in judging the doctor's behaviour. "'He's got a surprise for you, has Dick?' the doctor added. Dick Povey, after his father's death and his own partial recovery, had set up in Hanbridge as a bicycle agent. He was permanently lamed, and he hopped about with a thick stick. He had succeeded with bicycles, and had taken to automobiles, and he was succeeding with automobiles. People were at first startled that he should advertise himself in the five towns. There was an obscure general feeling that because his mother had been a drunkard, and his father a murderer, Dick Povey had no right to exist. However, when it had recovered from the shock of seeing Dick Povey with his announcement of bargains in the signal, the district most sensibly decided that there was no reason why Dick Povey should not sell bicycles as well as a man with normal parents. He was now supposed to be acquiring wealth rapidly. It was said that he was a marvellous chauffeur, at once daring and prudent. He had one day, several years previously, overtaken the sisters in the rural neighbourhood of Snade, where they had been making an afternoon excursion. Constance had presented him to Sophia, and he had insisted on driving the ladies home. They had been much impressed by his cautious care of them, and their natural prejudice against anything so new as a motor-car had been conquered instantly. Afterwards he had taken them out for occasional runs. He had a great admiration for Constance, founded on gratitude to Samuel Povey, and as for Sophia, he always said to her that she would be an ornament to any car. "'You haven't heard his latest, I suppose?' said the doctor, smiling. "'What is it?' Sophia asked perfunctorily. "'He wants to take up ballooning. It seems he's been up once.' Constance made a deprecating noise with her lips. "'However, that's not his surprise,' the doctor added, smiling again at the floor. He was sitting on the music-stool, and saying to himself behind his mask of effulgent good-nature, "'He gets more and more uphill work cheering up these two women. I'll try them on Federation.' Federation was the name given to the scheme for blending the five towns into one town, which would be the twelfth largest town in the kingdom. It aroused fury in Bursley, which saw in the suggestion nothing but the extinction of its ancient glory to the aggrandizement of Hanbridge. Hanbridge had already, with the assistance of electric cars that whizzed to and fro every five minutes, robbed Bursley of two-thirds of its retail trade, as witness the steady decadence of the square and Bursley had no mind to swallow the insult and become a mere ward of Hanbridge. Bursley would die fighting. Both Constance and Sophia were bitter opponents of Federation. They would have been capable of putting Federationists to the torture. Sophia, in particular, though so long absent from her native town, had adopted its cause with characteristic vigour, and when Dr. Stirling wished to practise his curative treatment of taking the sisters out of themselves— he had only to start the hare of Federation, and the hunt would be up in a moment. But this afternoon he did not succeed with Sophia, and only partially with Constance. When he stated that there was to be a public meeting that very night, and that Constance, as a ratepayer, ought to go to it and vote, if her convictions were genuine, 
She received his chaff with a mere murmur to the effect that she did not think she would go. Had the man forgotten that Spot was dead? At length he became grave, and examined them both as to their ailments, and nodded his head, and looked into vacancy while meditating upon each case. And then, when he had inquired where they meant to go for their summer holidays, he departed. "'Aren't you going to see him out?' Constance whispered to Sophia, who had shaken hands with him at the drawing-room door. It was Sophia who did the running about, owing to the state of Constance's sciatic nerve. Constance had indeed become extraordinarily inert, leaving everything to Sophia. Sophia shook her head. She hesitated, then approached Constance, holding out her hand and disclosing the crumpled telegram. "'Look at that,' said she. Her face frightened Constance, who was always expectant of new anxieties and troubles. Constance straightened out the paper with difficulty, and read, "'Mr. Gerald Scales is dangerously ill here. Baldero, 49, Deansgate, Manchester.' All through the inexpressibly tedious and quite unnecessary call of Dr. Stirling—why had he chosen to call just then? Neither of them was ill. Sophia had held that telegram concealed in her hand, and its information concealed in her heart. She had kept her head up, offering a calm front to the world. She had given no hint of the terrible explosion—for an explosion it was. Constance was astounded at her sister's self-control, which entirely passed her comprehension. Constance felt that worries would never cease, but would rather go on multiplying until death ended all. First there had been the frightful worry of the servant, then the extremely distressing death and burial of Spot, and now it was Gerald Scales turning up again. With what violence was the direction of their thoughts now shifted? The wickedness of maids was a trifle, the death of pets was a trifle, but the reappearance of Gerald's scales, that involved the possibility of consequences which could not even be named, so afflictive was the mere prospect to them. Constance was speechless, and she saw that Sophia was also speechless. Of course the event had been bound to happen. People do not vanish, never to be heard of again. The time surely arrives when the secret is revealed." so Sophia said to herself, now. She had always refused to consider the effect of Gerald's reappearance. She had put the idea of it away from her, determined to convince herself that she had done with him, finally and for ever. She had forgotten him. It was years since she had ceased to disturb her thoughts, many years. He must be dead, she had persuaded herself. It is inconceivable that he should have lived on and never come across me. If he had been alive, and learnt that I had made money, he would assuredly have come to me. No, he must be dead. And he was not dead. The brief telegram overwhelmingly shocked her. Her life had been calm, regular, monotonous. And now it was thrown into an indescribable turmoil by five words of a telegram, suddenly, with no warning whatever. Sophia had the right to say to herself, "'I have had my share of trouble, and more than my share.' The end of her life promised to be as awful as the beginning. The mere existence of Gerald Scales was a menace to her, but it was the simple impact of the blow that affected her supremely, beyond ulterior things. One might have pictured fate as a cowardly brute who had struck this ageing woman full in the face, a felling blow, which, however, had not felled her. She staggered, but she stuck on her legs. 
It seemed a shame, one of those crude, spectacular shames which make the blood boil, that the gallant, defenceless creature should be so maltreated by the bully, Destiny. "'Oh, Sophia!' Constance moaned. "'What trouble is this?' Sophia's lip curled with a disgusted air. Under that she hid her suffering. She had not seen him for thirty-six years. He must be over seventy years of age, and he had turned up again like a bad penny, doubtless a disgrace. What had he been doing in those thirty-six years? He was an old, enfeebled man now. He must be a pretty sight, and he lay at Manchester, not two hours away. Whatever feelings were in Sophia's heart, tenderness was not among them. As she collected her wits from the stroke, she was principally aware of the sentiment of fear. She recoiled from the future. "'What shall you do?' Constance asked. Constance was weeping. Sophia tapped her foot, glancing out of the window. "'Shall you go to see him?' Constance continued. "'Of course,' said Sophia. "'I must.' She hated the thought of going to see him. She flinched from it. She felt herself under no moral obligation to go. Why should she go? Gerald was nothing to her, and had no claim on her of any kind. This she honestly believed. And yet she knew that she must go to him. She knew it to be impossible that she should not go. "'Now?' demanded Constance. Sophia nodded. "'What about trains? Oh, you poor dear!' The mere idea of a journey to Manchester put Constance out of her wits, seeming a business of unparalleled complexity and difficulty. "'Would you like me to come with you?' "'Oh, no! I must go by myself.' Constance was relieved by this. They could not have left the servant in the house alone, and the idea of shutting up the house, without notice or preparation, presented it to Constance as too fantastic. By a common instinct they both descended to the parlour. "'Now, what about a timetable? What about a timetable?' Constance mumbled on the stairs. She wiped her eyes resolutely. "'I wonder whatever in this world has brought him at last to that Mr. Boldero's in Deansgate,' she asked of the walls. As they came into the parlour, a great motor-car drove up before the door, and when the pulsations of its engine had died away, Dick Povey hobbled from the driver's seat to the pavement. In an instant he was hammering at the door in his lively style. There was no avoiding him. The door had to be opened. Sophia opened it. Dick Povey was over forty, but he looked considerably younger. Despite his lameness, and the fact that his lameness tended to induce corpulence, he had a dashing air, and his face, with its short, light moustache, was boyish. He seemed to be always upon some joyous adventure. "'Well, aunties,' he greeted the sisters, having perceived Constance behind Sophia. He often so addressed them. "'As Dr. Stirling warned you that I was coming, why haven't you got your things on?' Sophia observed a young woman in the car. "'Yes,' said he, following her gaze. "'You may as well look. Come down, miss, come down. Come down, Lily. You've got to go through with it.' The young woman, delicately confused and blushing, obeyed. "'This is Miss Lily Hall,' he went on. "'I don't know whether you would remember her.' "'I don't think you do. It's not often she comes to the square. "'But, of course, she knows you by sight. "'Granddaughter of your old neighbour, Alderman Hall. "'We're engaged to be married, if you please.' Constance and Sophia could not decently pour out their griefs on the top of such news. 
the betrothed pair had to come in and be congratulated upon their entry into the large realms of mutual love. But the sisters, even in their painful quandary, could not help noticing what a nice, quiet, ladylike girl Lily Hall was. Her one fault appeared to be that she was too quiet. Dick Povey was not the man to pass time in formalities, and he was soon urging departure. "'I'm sorry, we can't come,' said Sophia. "'I've got to go to Manchester now. We're in great trouble.' "'Yes, in great trouble,' Constance weakly echoed. Dick's face clouded sympathetically, and both the affianced began to see that to which the egotism of their happiness had blinded them. They felt that long, long years had elapsed since these ageing ladies had experienced the delights which they were feeling. "'Trouble? I am sorry to hear that,' said Dick. "'Can you tell me the trains to Manchester?' asked Sophia. "'No,' said Dick, quickly. "'But I can drive you there quicker than any train, if it's urgent.' "'Where do you want to go to?' "'Deansgate,' Sophia faltered. "'Look here,' said Dick. "'It's half-past three. Put yourself in my hands. I'll guarantee at Deansgate you shall be before half-past five. I'll look after you. But there isn't any but. I'm quite free for the afternoon and evening.' At first the suggestion seemed absurd, especially to Constance, but really it was too tempting to be declined. While Sophia made ready for the journey, Dick and Lily Hall and Constance conversed in low, solemn tones. The pair were waiting to be enlightened as to the nature of the trouble. Constance, however, did not enlighten them. How could Constance say to them, "'Sophia has a husband that she hasn't seen for thirty-six years, and he's dangerously ill, and they've telegraphed for her to go?' Constance could not. It did not even occur to Constance to order a cup of tea." End of Book Four, Chapter Four, Part One.